For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in this readout video from our free Wednesday wake-up email newsletter, we're going underground. No, not because we've been censored or become paranoid. Because our lead item concerns a ridiculous warning from the New York Times about underground climate change that they tried to blame on man-made global warming while actually proving the exact opposite. According to the Times, quote, it isn't just Chicago. In big cities worldwide, humans burning of fossil fuels is raising the mercury at the surface. But heat is also pouring out of basements, parking garages, train tunnels, pipes, sewers, and electrical cables and into the surrounding earth, a phenomenon that scientists have taken to calling underground climate change, end quote. Scientists, you say. But here's the thing for these scientists to consider. If heat leaking out of buildings and subways is creating local hotspots right where we're measuring temperature, it's a classic case not of anthropogenic global warming where rising atmospheric CO2 is creating heat everywhere that's then radiating, radiating into cities, but of an urban heat island distorting effect where local hotspots are distorting thermometer readings. And at the risk of sowing calm, steam from subway grates is not a global crisis. The story says that Dr. Rhoda Loria, who's an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at Northwestern University, used more than 150 temperature sensors, plus the inevitable computer model, to discover that, quote, near some heat sources, the ground beneath Chicagoans' feet has warmed by 27 degrees Fahrenheit over the past seven decades, end quote which has exactly as much to do with global warming as the fact that the air above my oven warms by 27 degrees Fahrenheit while I'm roasting a turkey, such as this news story. And speaking of roasting, the alarmists are currently almost as excited about Canadian wildfires as they were a few years back when the lungs of the world were ablaze and then apparently went out. Heatmap Daily emailed us smoke until October on June 30th, unlike Canada itself, where the smoke mostly dissipated. And the Atlantic asked, how long will Canada burn? Though we are in Canada, and if the author had asked us, we could have told you that Canada is not on fire, just a few bits of our vast forest. But here's the big question. If global warming is causing Canada's record wildfire season, why... As Judith Curry asks, is the American one, quote, setting up to historically be one of the slowest years on record, end quote? Is America on a different planet than Canada? Or at least on a different continent? No. NBC was still blowing frantically on some damp kindling with the story, U.S. faces a wild weekend of weather, including extreme heat and severe storms, that said, quote, in addition to increasing the risk of heat-related illnesses and deaths, the hot and dry conditions in the West raise concerns about the outbreak of wildfires, end quote. Come on, guys, break out. Because their real concern is the lack of outbreak of wildfires, which puts their kibosh on the theory that Canadian ones indicate anything other than that a long buildup of tinder has ignited, as it periodically does and as it periodically always has. And speaking of things that periodically ignite, in case you were nostalgic for, say, eight years to save the planet, as announced by then Prince Charles in, oops, 2009, now King Charles and the Mayor of London have launched a climate clock that will helpfully count down the years, days, hours, minutes, and yes, seconds to 2030 in case your calendar, watch, and computer are all on the fritz. And beware, because if we don't act by then, 
someone will start another countdown. Also in the UK, it's cloudy with a chance of controversy, because a chart of temperature there since 1933, which is a decade old, but someone just brought it to our attention, shows that it correlates almost exactly with, what's this? Cloud cover, not CO2. The newsletter also dips into the complete lack of fun file for Statistica's warning of, quote, the hidden carbon footprint of the fashion industry, end quote. Although, to be fair, their main complaint is all the people flying around to endless fashion shows. And since most of them are almost certainly trendily alarmist on climate, it does hit its target. Also, the Atlantic's weekly planet concedes that, quote, e-bikes are going to keep exploding, end quote, and says, quote, for the foreseeable future, more e-bikes will explode and more people may die, end quote. But they might stop within 50 years. Gosh, there's a sales pitch for banning gasoline vehicles. And now, I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to ask you please to help support our work. Because here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we don't get lavish government grants, we don't get big foundation money, and contrary to what our critics say, we're not in the pocket of the Koch brothers. We're dependent on our viewers and our readers to make a pledge, one time or monthly, big or small, just click here, a cup of coffee a month. That's what it takes to help us keep producing these videos and our newsletter and pushing back against the climate alarmist steamroller. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also bring tidings that if you happen to have a packet of Tums or Rolaids or something like that, and you happen to be at the seashore, you should probably unwrap the tablets and toss them in. At least, so Nature Briefing tells us though you may not get much relief when you turn to the actual story, which says, quote, Startups are adding antacids to the ocean to slow global warming. Will it work? End quote. Plot spoiler, no, of course not. The oceans are huge. But anyway, that's plan B if merely screening out the sun doesn't manage to cause some apocalyptic disaster or monstrous fizzle in the name of saving the Earth from clods like you and me. And the idea of getting rid of sunlight really does continue to attract attention. Scientific American, or rather its farm team E&E News, just announced, quote, supercomputer will help decide whether to block the sun, end quote. Hey, ChatGPT, write us a brief essay on why letting climate computer models blot out sunlight could be a dreadful idea. Never mind, we'll do it ourselves. Because computer climate models don't make accurate predictions, so tampering with the whole ecosystem based on them, assuming that we could do it, would be completely insane. Particularly since we know that plants need sunlight even more than they need CO2. So, screening it out would devastate agriculture, even if it didn't take us past one of those infamous tipping points into a much colder world where plants just died off of their own accord. As usual, nature makes changing ocean chemistry sound like a gold rush, figuratively and literally. The article claims, quote, a New York experiment is part of a commercial race to develop ocean-based technologies to extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, end quote. A commercial race. Wanna bet? Your own money, we mean. Or just all our lives. Because according to Greenpeace co-founder Patrick Moore, the reason that atmospheric CO2 has been plunging for millions of years and bringing us to within 30 parts per million of the worst mass extinction ever that would have killed all the C3 planets on the planet permanently during the last glacial maximum, is that the oceans are absorbing too much CO2. 
specifically in the form of critters that make shells from calcium carbonate, then when they die, it all falls to the sea bottom and sequesters the carbon. Nature peddles this natural near catastrophe as a glorious triumph. It says, quote, the strategy behind ocean alkalinity enhancement is to speed up a natural geochemical weathering process that helps to stop the planet from overheating over long timescales, end quote. But in fact, over long timescales, the planet is cooling. What's more, over the last half billion years, it's typically been about 10 degrees Celsius warmer than it is today, but it now seems to be spiraling downward, including successive interglacials getting cooler in ways that, if they continue, spell D-E-A-T-H for most life on this Earth. So, the good news is, the pilot project didn't work. But when failure is the good news, look out for the bad. In the newsletter, we also note that the denier label now gets applied to anyone who questions not only whether man-made climate change is a thing, but whether the change in climate is a crisis. And yet, in a lament for bad manners online, a Guardian piece hurls that very insult, saying, quote, climate crisis deniers target scientists for vicious abuse on Musk's Twitter, end quote, apparently in the belief that Michael Mann is the most mild-mannered, soft-spoken person ever to urge that Donald Trump be put, quote, in prison for life, end quote, and also unaware that throwing a slur at people doesn't put you in a position to complain if they throw one back. Instead, according to Anna Fazakerly, the problem is that Twitter is no longer censoring the wrong kinds of people. Quote, Some of the UK's top scientists are struggling to deal with what they describe as a huge rise in abuse from climate crisis deniers on Twitter since the social media platform was taken over by Elon Musk last year. Since then, Key figures who ensured trusted content was prioritized have been sacked, according to one scientist, and Twitter's sustainability arm has vanished, end quote. So, they're falling apart psychologically because they can no longer censor the internet. Well, boo-hoo. Now, here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we actually have high standards for social media comments. And yes, we delete whatever we consider to be vile, including vulgarity, conspiracy theories, and unfounded allegations of criminal conduct. But when people react by calling us ugly names, we just brush them off and carry on. Including carrying on debunking the enthusiasm of the herd of independent minds for declaring Crawford Lake, which is a small freshwater body near Milton, Ontario, and no, you haven't heard of it unless you live there, the global ground zero for the Anthropocene. Look, we're all for a local small-town kid makes good stories, and... Crawford Lake definitely grew up in the boonies. But the whole story is rubbish, including that the hype centers on this Anthropocene having started in 1950, whereas the disastrous effects of man-made climate change supposedly already started about 13 different points and loom in 2030 and 2050, but none of those points was in 1950. Even the economists got into the act, or into the pond, saying, quote, a Canadian lake could mark the start of humanity's geological epoch. Plutonium, carbon, and plastic mark a new phase in the Earth's history, end quote. Carbon? Really? You don't find that supposed pollutant and chemical element before 1950? Plastic also dates back over a century, and to be fair, plutonium is never found in nature, except when it is. Nevertheless, a Canadian press story quoted Francine McCarthy, who's a geologist at Brock University and was on the research team for the Anthropocene Working Group of the International Union of Geological Sciences, so obviously completely unbiased, that, quote, it's a bit sobering. 
Within that short span of time, the system flipped and can't go back to the way it used to be, end quote. What flip? From what to what? And what short span? Are we talking 1950 to 2023? 1950 to 1990? 1990 to 2023? And why can't it go back? If we got atmospheric CO2 back to 1950 levels and crop productivity dropped correspondingly, what would be so different from the original 1950? The CP story adds that Crawford Lake's status is going to be voted on at the August 2024 meeting of the International Union of Geological Sciences, which it says, quote, will bring to a close a debate geologists have been having since 2009, end quote, which shows you how much they know about science. Science isn't decided by a show of hands. If it were, evolution would have been voted off the Galapagos Islands sometime around 1865. And we can't help wondering whether, if there had been a ballot on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it would have had a box saying yes and no. A total softball MSNBC story on Crawford Lake, in which one journalist interviews another journalist, claims that the lake has, quote, really unique chemistry that's found pretty much nowhere else on the planet, end quote. And the reason for that is that it's quite small and quite deep, so it has rarely disturbed sediment layers. Unlike any other lake anywhere? Alas, we may never know, because Nature explains that Professor McCarthy, quote, does not plan to collect cores at Crawford Lake again. The lake is sentient, according to indigenous groups who live or have lived in the area, and taking samples from the lake violates that personhood, end quote. Look, if you really think the lake is sentient, why not interview it? Like, respectfully, of course. You'd ask it things like, how does it feel to be unique? Or, does each of your layers have a personality? Or, does plutonium taste bad? Stuff like that. Or, was that just more woke babble? In the newsletter, we also continue our dive into the Clintel report on the IPCC's AR6. And this week, it's a review by Ross McKittrick of the University of Guelph of Chapter 8, in which the Clintel people look at the IPCC's view of how well computer climate models compare to observations. Now, with overwhelming evidence that these models predict too much heating in the Earth's atmosphere, even when the programmers are allowed to tweak their creations to try to match known sea surface warming trends, the IPCC has finally, reluctantly, bumped up their confidence that the models exaggerate warming, but only from low to medium. So, McKittrick says, quote, one wonders how much more evidence they need to claim high confidence, since in other areas they jump to that level with much less to go on, end quote. Well, maybe if their computer froze. And another thing. A new study says that heat killed tens of thousands of Europeans this century. Aha, shout the alarmist. Gotcha. Told you so. But no, wait. Let us finish the sentence. Because it continues as follows. According to this new study in The Lancet, excess cold killed hundreds of thousands of Europeans this century. So cold is still more deadly than heat. And on that subject, we also look at a CO2science.org archive study on temperature-related mortality risk in Iran, which, of course, is generally hotter than Europe. Nevertheless, the main finding of the study is that daily temperature fluctuations didn't kill people in the hot season, but they did in the colder months. Once again, cold is deadlier than heat. And once again, for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And those are this week's notes from underground and underwater. Thank you.